Thank you so much for joining me. Um, well, I've discovered Tangle. Um, I think somebody recommended it to me on Twitter and I've been subscribing ever since. And I really, really enjoy it arriving in my email box. And, you know, I don't read it every day, but I read it a lot of the time. And especially when I notice there is a topic that sort of relates to something I'm interested in in the headlines. And I'll just sort of skim the different points of view. Um, and and then I'll I'll skip through to your opinion a lot of the time. But maybe Let's introduce what Tangle is to the people who are yeah. hearing about it for the first time and they have no idea what I'm talking about. How would you describe Tangle? Yeah, sure. So, I mean, I like to say that it's it's our effort at giving people a wide spectrum of views on one big political debate every day. So the idea is we look out into the space, the, the political world for things that are driving a lot of conversation, whether it's you know, foreign policy, an issue like trans rights, um, anything under the sun that is kind of just, you know, going through the political machine. And then we collect various opinions, some some from the right, some from the left, and we aggregate them into our newsletter. We sort of introduce the opinions with, you know, a breakdown of the story with the most neutral facts we can find, share what the left saying, share what the right saying. And then I kind of give my own take, which is, you know, I like to say I'm pretty politically incongruent. It really depends what the issue is that I'm talking about. And I very much enjoy punching holes in people's arguments or saying, you know, this is a really good point that made me change my mind. And yeah, we send it out. It's a daily newsletter, Monday through Thursday. And then we have Friday editions that are sort of like interviews or deep dives or a little bit of a different format that are uh, the the paid content of the newsletter. But yeah, I mean, my, you know, I started Tangled because I recognize that people, conservatives and liberals in particular, uh, I think independents too, to some degree, but conservatives and liberals were, were not getting or reading or interacting with the same news, which I think is a really big problem. Well, they're, they're kind of going into their own, I guess, echo chambers, as we call them, right? And, and this is a great place to sort of read the highlights of the strongest arguments, something that I really like is that whether you were, you know, when you were highlighting the conservative arguments or you're um, highlighting the liberal arguments, you're highlighting the top arguments, the best arguments. You're not highlighting the, the you know, the cheap shots. Um, and I think that's really valuable because a lot of the times, even if, um, you know, if it, whether it's Fox or New York Times or whoever, when they're representing, if they even bother to do that, they're representing the arguments from the other side. They're they're generally choosing the weakest arguments, and I think that's that presents no value to the audience. Right? Yeah, it's it is the most common tactic that I see being used in the cable news space for sure. Also in the Twitter space, I mean, it's like it's the crazy megaphone, you know, like you find the person on the other side saying the most batshit stuff about whatever topic you're discussing and you elevate that person and you try and make it, you know, representative of the entire left or the entire right. Um, but it's, I'll tell you, I mean, this, obviously the selection for what we're going to include in the newsletter is one of the hardest parts of the job. And, you know, I do, I definitely, I'm trying to find the arguments that I find most compelling and are most coherent and most convincing, but we also try to balance it in a way where, you know, we're representing what people are actually saying or what they're thinking. You know, we don't want to 
bury something that's maybe a mainstream argument just because I think it's a crappy argument because then like my biases are shaping the newsletter. So we really do try and find this nice mix of the, here's like a very compelling argument that maybe nobody else is making on the right. That's sort of a counterpoint to other conservative voices, or here's like the mainstream argument. This is like the standard bearer talking point that people are hitting. Um, and just make sure that it's not you know, I'm not just sharing the arguments because I like them because then it's just, you know, my, it's an issue with me, but it is, I mean, it is a, I, I think the one thing we do is definitely do is we cut out a lot of the fat right away, which is just like the people who are just being totally disingenuous and, you know, either making arguments based on something that is not reality or making arguments just in a way that's meant to be sort of petty and uh, sensationalist. So how do you how do you make sure that you do make that argument in a really fair way that you do represent everything in this accurate fair way that you're not letting your own bias get in the way because obviously you do have your own bias and you're not you're not um, hiding that because you have your own take that you put at the bottom. Uh, so how do you make sure that that you you are getting it right. Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, I, I have a few sort of checks and balances that I put on myself, I guess. The first one is just, there should be like a, a big majority of the arguments that show up in the newsletter should be things that make me feel uncomfortable. And if that's not happening, then I'm like 100% certain that I am, you know, I'm, I'm catering to my own views. So when I read something that sort of pisses me off or, or like makes me feel like this is like, I'm, you know, I can see the holes in this argument, whatever, I don't like it. I'm that's like a pretty good signal for me that they're touching some kind of nerve on whatever the issue is that I should not reject and push that away. I should really strongly consider um, using it. The other great thing is, you know, especially in the written news space, I have, you know, whatever, 50 or 100 sources from each kind of like conservative leaning or left leaning um, news outlet that's out there. And I can just look at the the stories that they're featuring, you know, the ones that they're making prominent on their opinion pages or their home pages. And to me, that's like a good signal. You know, Fox News has on their opinion section, they've got the same story that's in like the banner position for 24 hours. Then I know that's like an opinion piece that they want their audience to see. That's very representative of what like the opinion editors want Fox News to be putting out. And so that's a good like key to me that okay, this is like an argument that Fox is elevating. They're sharing it in their newsletters, whatever. It's clearly something they feel is representative of the network's position. And so I'll feature that, even if I think it's kind of a, you know, a specious argument or whatever, it doesn't really matter. Um, oftentimes I find them pretty good, but, you know, it's just a, it's just a matter of recognizing when pieces are circulating a lot, they're being shared heavily, like, okay, this is resonating with people who are sharing it. They feel like their views are being represented. So I look for stuff like that and not just my own kind of emotional reaction, I guess. Well, you know, a lot of people, a lot of people <laughs> have been complaining <laughs> about, you know, the media for, for a long time and, and uh, not that many have actually gone out and, and done something. So I'm curious to know what your background is. Um, you know, if you worked in this space and and what was that, you know, I mean, obviously you were seeing things that um, weren't working in the media, um, as you mentioned, but 
was there like an aha moment for you? And what were sort of the, what was the background that sort of led you here? Yeah. So, I mean, my first job ever was at the Huffington Post, which uh, does not hide their <laughs> politics. So I'll just say no. that. Um, I don't think that's a secret. And, you know, I was 23. I was fresh out of college. After after school, I'd gone to Israel um, and was actually living in a yeshiva in a religious school there and basically went because it was like six months of free rent and food in Jerusalem. And I didn't know what I wanted to do yet after school. And I got this offer to go in this program and they gave me a writing internship. And it was sort of like, hooked me with the internship. And then we're like, Hey, we have this religious school you could live in and maybe study in. And, um, it was a very like, you know, Jewish program, which was some of the most intellectually stimulating time of my life. And I got to travel in the middle East when I was there. And so I was writing to all these news outlets, you know, I was writing essays basically from my trips and then sending them to dozens of news outlets a week, pitching them as pieces, saying I was looking for a job. I was, you know, I was a sports journalist in in college and then decided I want to write about politics. Um, and what I like to tell people is, you know, I didn't go work at Huffington Post because I was a big bleeding heart lib. I went to work there because they were the only place that offered me a job <laughs> and uh, jobs and journalism are kind of hard to, to come by. So I got thrown into the machine immediately. Um, I was there for less than a year and, you know, I saw how it works. I saw how, you know, headline editing is done, how stories are leveraged to go viral and get traffic and um, the way the framing of a story is adjusted in order to drive traffic to make it more, you know, compelling or interesting or emotional for readers, which are sort of like, you know, really just a nice, kind way, clean way of saying they get more clicks and they get more shares and they piss more people off and they drive more advertising revenue. Um, and when I was there, I, I, you know, I left Huffington Post to take my next job, which was actually to start a media company with Ashton Kutcher, the, the actor who is in a VC venture fund phase. Okay. And um, he started a company called A Plus where I was the first, one of the first editorial hires. And we did kind of solutions journalism, which is, you know, highlighting people who are fixing stuff, not breaking it. And when I went there, I started publishing, you know, political pieces. I was running the politics vertical under a totally new brand, like a, a company that did not exist before. And we had a lot of, a huge Facebook social imprint because of Ashton and some celebrities he had involved. And people would go online, read my piece, and then they would look me up and see that my last job was at the Huffington Post and either totally dismiss everything I'd written or trust me because they were liberal. Mm. And that was like my original, oh shit. Like it's it's so bad that it's, it's not even um, that I'm publishing in the Huffington Post and conservatives are ignoring me. It's that these active readers are looking up where I am. And like the top comment on my article for A plus is this guy worked at Huffington Post. He's total liberal trash, whatever, with 500 likes. And I'm like, okay. So they're like, they're not even reading it. It doesn't matter what I write. doesn't matter what the argument is. Um, I know the and, feeling. <laughs> yeah. And that's <laughs> just like- my, my lines, right? Yeah. Yeah. And that, and that, that was my, you know, not just are we siloed, but we're so distrustful that it's like, you get dismissed like that. And I was, you know, 
23, I barely had a political identity, let alone a journalism career. And it was like, I was in the box and that was it. And it was over. Um, and pretty much since then, I've been thinking about it. And so, you know, fast forward seven or eight years, um, A plus, I stayed there for a long time and I freelance for a lot of other places. I've, you know, been on CNN, I've written for Time Magazine and Vox and whoever. And I've just seen the sausage get made in various different ways. And A plus went through an acquisition and they sort of made a transition to start doing only video stuff. And that one, you know, I, I was looking for other jobs, had some final interviews, didn't get them, ran into a bunch of walls. And I was finally just like, I don't even want to work for these places. Like, I really just want to make my own thing. And Substack was sort of just blossoming. And so I had this idea, decided just to send a newsletter to a hundred friends and colleagues. And that was really how Tangle started was just sending people an email in this format with like, here's a story, here's what the left's saying, here's what the right's saying, here's my take. And then let me know what you think about this. And a lot of people wrote back and said, dude, I would read this every day. Like this makes it so much easier to, to get, you know, political news. And um, that was 2019, right around the democratic primary. So I had pretty good timing and, you know, it turned into the Biden, Bernie, Elizabeth Warren war, and then Trump won the nomination again, or Trump decided to run again. And, you know, Biden, Trump head to head. And so we had a lot of really good growth and attention heading into the 2020 election and have kind of ridden that up till now. Wow. Well, you know, it's interesting because um, I did start in journalism, I think, uh, significantly um, quite a quite a bit earlier um, than than you, I think, and uh, so somewhere in the early two thousands. And so um, it's so I've seen it change so much, and I think a lot changed with the internet, and 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 I think politically things have changed quite a bit, and sort of journalistic standards have changed. The editors that I worked with, just the standards. Um, I can't say that it was always across the board excellent. I've definitely <laughs> seen some of the sausage being made the wrong way, but I've also had um, excellent um, editors who've really pushed me um, to be very specific in my writing, to be very accurate. There were fact checkers that were employed and, you know, not fact checkers in the way that people look at fact checkers with suspicions now, but actual yeah. fact checkers and made sure that we got you know, information correct. Um, and so I've seen it transform completely and I'm sort of baffled by the, the, where standards have sort of fallen. Um, and so it, it's, it's been kind of a remarkable journey. And like you, I've, I've also encountered because, you know, some of my bylines are like the Guardian, the Washington Post and CNN, people do look at me <laughs> with suspicion, but I've sort of been earning, um, you know, I, I, I imagine, you know, I don't know if people uh, try to put you in a box politically. I've I've tried to sort of, I've gone through a little bit of, you know, I don't want to be in any kind of box um, because I like to make up my mind on different issues and not even, you know, identify as one thing or the or another. And then sometimes I will identify on a particular side because I am, I do lean one way more. And and I feel like it's important to maybe model that um, 
you know, not everyone that particular side is so close-minded and some people do stick to sort of the old ideals. Um, so sometimes I think, oh, maybe it is important to say that out loud and sort of kind of go back and forth uh, with that a bit. Um, do people try to tag you as being, you know, and I think you're pretty transparent though as where, where you stand, but have you thought like, do I identify as, you know, liberal or conservative or you know wherever you happen to sit i get everything honestly i mean i it, it i think it depends really heavily on when people sign up for the newsletter like what given week um because i know for sure you know i can tell you last week was you know heading into the midterms one of the big stories of the midterms was obviously how a lot of candidates who had questioned the results of the 2020 election were going to do. And through Tangle and other reporting that I've done, you know, for other news outlets, I've done a ton of writing about allegations about election fraud. And, you know, I've I've interviewed hundreds of people. I've been on the ground at polling places. I've observed the elections and I am like, very, very convinced and adamant that the 2020 election was above board and election fraud happens, of course, all these things, but it wasn't stolen. And the people who are saying it was stolen are lying. And we know why they're lying because it's really profitable. And, you know, and, and I've kind of been beating that drum to my audience. And so, you know, leading into this week in some, my take sections in Tangle, I've sort of expressed relief about certain candidates like Doug Mastriano in Pennsylvania or Kerry Lake in Arizona losing because I think that they're grifters and I'm, I'm comfortable saying that. And so people who are reading Tangle this week, you know, I'm getting a lot of emails from sort of conservative, like Trump right people who are like, oh, great. Another like nonpartisan newsletter who's, you know, you're just the, a lefty and it's all bullshit. And I'm like, I'm not a lefty. I just think these people are, are grifters. And so like, you know, it's they, it, like, just address me on what I said. Like, if there's something in there that you don't like, or you think is untrue, I'm really, truly happy to talk to you about it. But if you're unsubscribing, because I said something you didn't like, then you're like missing the entire point of this whole enterprise. Um, then again, you know, in Trump's like final week in office, we did a lot of like reviews of his presidency, where I graded the things that he did and talked about you know, from a pure policy standpoint, like what did he say he was going to do campaign on and what did he actually do? And Trump did a lot of shit that he said he was going to do. Like he, he got a lot of stuff done. He reduced immigration. He expanded the military. He pulled out of wars overseas. He, he did stuff that he campaigned on. And I said that and gave him a lot of props for it. And, you know, in a week like that, like the last election cycle, I got a ton of people unsubscribing saying like, you're a closet Trumper. I can't believe I, I've been trusting you for the last six months when really like you just, you know, and the vast majority of my audience, I think, is really rational and even tempered. And they're there because they want to get both sides of the of the spectrum and, and they don't bail. But the people who leave and like make the accusations about what side you're on, I mean, I yeah, I hear that stuff every day. Yeah, I mean, like I always say, like my allegiance is is to the truth. Um, I don't have to personally like Trump or any other politician to be like, okay, good job um, on this particular thing. You said you do it, you did it. This thing, not so good. It, yeah. it, 
I think you should be able to, regardless of whether you like a candidate or not, or a politician or not, whether you like them or not, you have to be just honest and um, and just sensible about it. Otherwise, you just do a great disservice and nobody's ever going to trust you. And you're, yeah, and, and it's just, it turned into this, people are just kind of can't be honest with <laughs> in conversations. <laughs> I, I just find it... And 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 I've found this in general, um, it, just in my work environments. Whenever I said something, uh, let's say about Trump, that I'm like, well, well, this this specific thing, that's not true. This thing that he's being criticized on, because I watched the whole tape, for example. Well, I'd immediately be accused of being, you know, a Trump lover. Now, with me, people sort of div- did it teasingly because you know, I had some goodwill in my, in my community, but, um, it's still kind of, I mean, it's the truth, right? All I'm saying is the truth. It doesn't matter. It it wasn't about me liking or not liking someone. Um, and yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll say too, oftentimes what I say is, you know, the accusations that I get are much more a reflection of the people's bias who are making the accusations than my own. I mean, and and, and I tell that to readers who write in these emails. I'm just, you know, I, I say, look, I think you are maybe further to the left than I am, or you're maybe further to the right than I am. But I think you accusing me of being on this other side of the spectrum is way more about your own strong partisan political beliefs than where I am on the actual spectrum when you zoom out you know, at the 30,000 foot level, because I do think my politics are like pretty close to the center if you took them all in aggregate. Um, And it's like, there are certain issues that I, again, I feel really strongly about. And I understand why people might peg me one way or the other, but I'm also like, I just reject the, the premise of the question. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm, I don't like being called left or right or liberal conservative. I'm not even sure what those words mean well, it, anymore. And it pegs you into into specific positions, right? That that almost become immovable. It's like you can't now you have to identify with all of this or all of this. Like when I really explore my own views about certain positions, I'm like, well, you know what? I'm kind of progressive on some things. I might be a little bit conservative in some things. I might be libertarian in some areas. Like and so when you you put people into these boxes and now they're sort of forced to commit to these things, but like our ultimately what we have that's much more consistent are our values. Everything else, I think it's more about ideas and and you it doesn't always fit so conveniently and things change as well. Yeah, I mean and and also should be open to the your own views changing. I mean that's right. For me, even just the process of doing this newsletter every day and immersing myself in, you know, more progressive or more conservative political news and getting that diverse opinion every day. I mean, that my my views are different now than they were three years ago on a lot of issues because of the process of doing this newsletter and, um, you know, exposing myself to more content and different information that's out there versus like being in whatever silos I was in before. I mean, um, and I think that's like a pretty, that's a, that's been a pretty interesting thing for me to experience and kind of realize that this, you know, reading Tangle, producing Tangle has, has, you know, affected me in a really deep way. And so 
I imagine if people were to read it a lot, it would also have a big impact on them and their views and, and the way that they kind of view the world because your opinions change or should change when you get new input, you know, and I, and not enough people are kind of willing to allow that to happen. Yeah. There's like a weird stubbornness to want to cling to, to certain viewpoints. Um, and I don't know if I fully understand why it's so important for people to maintain that viewpoint, why there isn't like more flexibility in terms of, I guess, because I, I have actually, I have the opposite problem, you know, I, I change my mind quite frequently, quite easily. Um, and I jump around when I'm presented with new information, and maybe even too much, you know, I, I am too prone to jumping around. Um, so it's hard for me sometimes to understand, why is it that people make it such a crucial, critical part of their identities? and uh find it so difficult to move their opinions like is it is it do you think it's because it's their community it's their tribe is it tribal yeah i mean about that i was the word that i was going to use was i think it's community i mean i i think it's i think the i mean and tribalism is a great you know synonym i mean it's it's people are they attach themselves to a certain political view or political cause. They surround themselves with people who share those views and those feelings. They spend time with them. They become their friends. They hear that stuff being said and done. And then, you know, they, it's either agree with the, you know, the whole palette of views that are out there on that side in that tribe or get kind of ostracized for it. And the right and the left are both guilty of that. And I think there's a tremendous amount of pressure there. Um, you know, I, I can say from personal experience, living in Brooklyn for five or six years and having a ton of friends who are, who I love deeply and care about deeply, who are very progressive and hearing something said at like a party or we're hanging out or whatever, that's like a political position that I'm like, oh, I don't think that's true or right at all. And then like, you know, feeling the pressure of like, if I say this, do I want to have this 30 minute conversation and like maybe burn this friendship or not? And, you know, it's that that's that I think, you know, there's been tons of social science and some great books written about this phenomenon of people who are now, you know, their, their communities that used to be sports teams and bowling alleys and knitting clubs and whatever are now political groups and, and political tribes. And that creates a really, really big um, incentive, I think, for you to say, stay kind of entrenched, which is a kind of scary thing to think about. Yeah, no, I can definitely see that maybe because I'm much more of a loner <laughs> that I have less. <laughs> no, but I do see that. And I, and I, and, and I definitely uh, bit my tongue a lot for many years. Um, and I did not discuss, I mean, I wasn't even very political. I, I didn't really discuss politics. Um, it's just that I started seeing how that was affecting uh, my immediate world and the people within it, uh, and, and how it was kind of hurting people, um, that I started feeling that it became necessary because it was this kind of silencing culture, um, where people were sort of being hurt by the fact that we couldn't talk more openly, um, that there was this tremendous division. And so it felt more important to be able to speak to each other. And, 
I've discovered that a lot of people were actually feeling this way, including in these like very sort of left-leaning communities <laughs> because they were, um, a lot of people didn't want to speak because they didn't want to have that 30-minute conversation, right? And they almost felt the sense of relief when somebody would bring up maybe a different point of view because they shared it and were just afraid to speak. And so um, felt more connected as a result, being able to sort of express it and without real judgment or anybody jumping on you. Did you, do you feel like, what kind of subscribers do you get? Do you feel like there's more liberals or more conservatives? Is there a balance? Yeah, I will actually know pretty precisely. I mean, we have, um, I think about 40% of our mailing list self-identifies as liberal and about 25% conservative. And then the rest is pretty in the middle or independent or, you know, kind of fringe left or right where they're like, I'm not, I'm not, a, I'm not a, a liberal. I'm like a green party, whatever, you know? Um, so yeah, I mean, I, I feel really good about that. I think um, that split is probably much more diverse than most news outlets have. And I also know that I'm climbing an uphill battle with conservatives because they feel really burned by the media. And I'm a journalist by trade, you know, I'm not, I'm not like a random conservative political activist who decided to start writing, which like a lot of people in the conservative media space are. And so they earn trust with people on the right a, a lot easier than I do. Uh, and you know, people can still find out I worked for the Huffington Post 10 years ago when they go look me up online, you know, so it's, it's, uh, it's a much bigger challenge to win over, I think, conservative readers and subscribers. And I'm trying to meet them where they are in a lot of places, just in terms of, you know, advertising the newsletter or the content we're covering or whatever. Um, because it feels to me like, if if my audience was just entirely left, then I'm, you know, I'm not really changing anything. I'm not, I'm not helping. Uh, but, you know, I think that's just kind of the social dynamics. It's like, it's the same thing that's happening in the polling space right now, you know, like they, pollsters think they're undercounting the kind of Trump right conservative vote, because when you work for the New York Times and you call somebody randomly on the phone, you say, hey, I'm a pollster with the New York Times. Can I talk to you for 10 minutes? A Trump voter is a lot less likely to stay on the phone and and give you their time. So um, that that's that's definitely a challenge that I run into. But yeah, we have a pretty diverse readership, and I think for the most part, everybody's there for the same reason, which is like they're really curious about what the other side's saying and what their views are, which is uh, an encouraging sign to me. With your subscribers, I mean, I imagine that they talk back a lot. You hear from <laughs> them. Yes. Yeah. So clearly that is the case based on your reaction. What have you learned from them? Man, ooh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, first of all, I think I've learned that, you know, in a, I, I don't know how tangible this is, but I think I've learned that a lot of people are really screaming into the void and feel like they're screaming into the void. Um, one of the most common things that happens to me is I get a really pissed off email and somebody says some like vaguely horrible thing about how I'm like a terrible writer and wasting my time and whatever. And I write them back and just say like, Hey, um, I read all these emails. I work like super hard on this newsletter I think you're kind of taking, you know, my words 
in a way that I didn't intend them. Right. Here's what I meant about what you're talking about. If you want to have a real conversation about it, like, I'd love to hear your perspective. And I mean, like 99% of the time, the people who reply are like, holy shit, I didn't think you were going to read that. You know, like that, that is like one of the most common things. It's just like, I'm sorry, I feel like a jerk. Thanks for writing me back, you know. And I learned a lot that most people, especially those people who feel like their voice isn't part of the conversation, you know, they're leaving a comment on Facebook that gets buried amongst thousands of others or in the comment section of Washington Post or Breitbart or wherever. And, you know, they don't, they don't feel heard. They don't get seen. They don't, they don't have that kind of personal connection. And it's one of the great advantages of the newsletter platform where it's a very intimate thing to kind of be in somebody's inbox. Uh, so I've learned that for sure. Um, I think generally speaking, I think a lot of Americans are experts in like one or two things. And that has been really interesting for me because anytime I write a newsletter about any topic and, you know, we chase the news. So it's, we're not like, we're not doing breaking news, but for instance, last week we wrote about the elections in Brazil. So I don't know anything about the elections in Brazil. I don't know. All I know about Brazilian politics is like, Bolsonaro's relationship with the United States and what he's done. And like, you know, Lula wants to save the rainforest and that's like it. So I spend a week, hours a day reading about Brazilian politics and watching YouTube videos and translating Brazilian articles online from Portuguese to English and listening to podcasts. So I can get like a basic understanding of it and then find these writers who I know are trustworthy or popular, who have like strong histories of reporting on Brazil and sharing their perspectives. And then we put it in the newsletter. And then I hear from 10 readers who are like, live in Brazil or in, you know, a diplomat in the US for like some Brazilian politician or something. And it doesn't matter what the topic is. I'm, you know, Tangle has, I think a little over 50,000 subscribers on our mailing list now. And at that level, there's like, there are like four or five people on any given topic we write about who are just straight up experts in it, which I found really interesting is just, you know, you think about what that means politically. And it's like, there's always going to be, you know, for any individual you pluck out of the country, there's going to be like one or two issues that they know really intimately and that they're probably seeing a bunch of people who are in office screwing up and a bunch of journalists who are writing about it, misreporting it. And that creates certain trust, distrust, animosity towards that politician, animosity towards the party. And I found that like a lot of Americans are, at least the ones I interact with, they are really defined by like a couple of key issues that they actually care a lot about or have personal experience with, or they feel like are fixable and nobody's fixing them. Um, and those are usually the kinds of emails that are really fun for me to get is, somebody saying like, Hey, this is, you know, the, I'm a lawyer who's fight. You know, I, I, this just happened. We wrote about uh, a Supreme court case. And one of the people who wrote in was like a, a litigator who was working under one of the lawyers, giving the oral arguments in the Supreme court case and wrote in anonymously and was just like, this is like, you did some really comprehensive coverage here. I'm not seeing anywhere else. I just wanted to say, great job. And like, I didn't see any errors or anything. And I'm like, Oh, awesome. And sometimes they're not nice emails, but it's just cool to know that, you know, everybody has their thing out there and 
you know, their own story and experience to tell. And um, it's a really big and diverse and interesting country that we live in here in the US. And uh, it's really hard to keep everybody happy. Um, and, you know, you just kind of have to accept that that's sort of part of the game when you're sharing your opinion publicly about politics. Do you ever feel like um, after the fact, after your newsletter and your take has gone out, you've changed your mind about something? How does that, if, if has that happened? And how do you feel after the fact? Do you want to, do you have that urge to sort of correct it? Yeah, for sure. It happens actually pretty regularly. I mean, I, I've, I've had readers push me out of positions. Um, I can give you sort of two examples, uh, kind of going in opposite directions that have happened recently. I mean, I wrote about the, the chase of Boudin recall in San Francisco, and I think I took a pretty left of center position, which was like, you know, people are kind of, they're, they're overreacting to two years of these like crime rates when no prosecutor is going to change the city in that amount of time. And on paper, I actually like a lot of his ideas and I I was bummed. I was like, I, I wish San Francisco is a huge major city with a big homeless problem, a big crime problem. It would have been really awesome to see him sort of see those next, like get a, get 10 years in office and see if he could actually make change. Cause I know how hard it is from a governmental perspective to change stuff. Um, and I heard from tons of readers who lived in San Francisco who were just like, dude, you're off. Like he sucked. He ruined, like he, he ruined a lot of really basic stuff in the city. It is like basically unlivable here in downtown San Francisco, like not people in the Bay area, but people were like living in the city. Um, personal stories about crime and homelessness stuff they experienced. I had some mom who wrote in whose son basically, you know, killed himself in like a, one of those like public recovery centers where people can use drugs um, observed by the government and was just like, he should have been in jail because he would have gotten sober. That's what I wanted. Like, you know, just like this huge gamut of stuff. And so I came out a few weeks later and said like, you know, I got a ton of feedback and I think my position changed a little bit on this. And here's like how I would moderate if I were to rewrite the newsletter. Here's here's what I would say. Uh, yeah. yeah. Last week I wrote about Elon taking over Twitter and I took like a pretty standard right wing position of, you know, I think everyone's overreacting. I don't think Twitter is going to change that much. I think like it's great that the company's going to get some more diversity. This guy is a genius and he's like created all these amazing things. Just like, let's see what happened and give it some time. I think the last two weeks have been a fucking disaster. I mean, like he seems like he is just completely shooting from the hip and totally unprepared and firing a bunch of people who are really smart and acting like a total clown on Twitter, which he always does. But you would think like maybe As for a minute, CEO, yeah, yeah, he would like play nice and, yeah. and put his like grown up hat on. And I'm like, oh, maybe this is just like a really super rich 15 year old troll. And that's just like who he is. So, you know, I haven't followed up on that position yet, but right now as it stands, I'm like, oh, I think I maybe got that wrong. And Elon's actually like a total ass and I should probably say that at some point. So, you know, it, it, it happens a lot. And there were tons of readers who hated my position on that and let me know about it. And I'm hearing from them now. They're like, so what do you think? You know, uh, 
because they're watching it unfold too. And I think it's clear it's a little bit of a shit show. Um, so yeah. Well, I think people happens. forget that, you know, we can be wrong about things, right? And, yeah. uh, and that's okay. <laughs> like that happens. We don't have all, all the information. We can change our mind. And especially, you know, uh, you have this like fantastic feedback loop having these 50,000 people potentially around the world, right? Giving you this feedback. Um, I think there isn't like, that structure for most traditional media where you can have these updates. Oh, okay. They got this a little bit wrong. Let's update this viewpoint. There's very rarely this kind of follow-up that happens. Um, I sometimes have gone back even in my substacks because I kind of rethought things and, and I've, I've, I've updated occasionally um, when people have given me a little bit more to think about um, but I think generally, um, there is like this kind of static nature to a lot of the media, like the article goes out and it's kind of it. Um, so, uh, you know, I think there's like a lot of dissatisfaction, obviously in general with, with the media as, as is, and, you know, while I'm not ready to sort of bury the whole media co industrial complex completely, um, you know, I, I do feel strongly there needs to be a lot of change. Curious to know where, where you think the future of journalism is heading. You know, do you think it's the future is newsletters, Substack, and and different kinds of models? Do you think there's a chance that sort of traditional media will fix itself? Is it more in the hands of independent journalists? What are your thoughts on it generally? Yeah, I mean it's a great question. I I I tend to feel that the future is kind of here. I mean I I think First of all, I love to criticize the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and Fox News and all the biggest players out there, but I can't do what I do without them. I mean, I exist because they exist. I'm following the news trends that they're starting in some ways, or if they're not starting them, they're certainly publishing content from writers who are talking about them or reporting on those issues. And I lean on them heavily as like, a source of information or to understand what people are interested in. And, you know, the key is having that sort of bullpen of really diverse politically uh, news outlets. But, you know, the independent creators don't exist without them, in my opinion. And I, I, I see it a little bit out there, like the kind of hubris that's coming up from some of the, the like Substack folks and whoever who are sort of blowing up. And I'm just like, I I'm with you. Like I'm on the, the mainstream media has screwed up and we are army of people who are a good check and balance on them, but let's not pretend like, you know, we could do what we do without them sort of setting the agenda in terms of the reporting that they're doing and the stories that they're writing and all that stuff. And I, I think it's a good balance. I think the tension that we have right now uh, is, is really healthy. I think it's very clear to me, the writings on the wall that the video space is, you know, I think the pivot to video we had like 10 years ago in the journalism world that I'm sure you experienced was just like way premature. But if you just look at YouTube and TikTok and how the next generation gets their news, I think that's going to be a really dominant space down the road. I'm actually hoping at some point in the next year to launch a, a video version of Tangle, a YouTube channel of some sort that's sort of doing like a 
a video version of our content. Um, because I think that's, yeah, I think it's going to be a really good way to communicate with, with the, the next gen. And some of them are totally going to graduate in the email and like get off TikTok. I hope to God, but a lot of them are, you know, I think are going to get used to getting their news from video. So, you know, I don't think New York times and wall street journal and CNN are going anywhere anytime soon. I think that they are now a lot less able to sort of dictate what the masses think and feel because there's so many people out there who are watching them like Hawks. And I think that's really good because I think they screwed up a ton in the last. I hope years. they self-reflect a little bit more because um, <laughs> I think what's missing is a little bit of self-reflection. I mean, I'm also not, I think some people are so harsh, like, like it's, it's complete. These are complete monsters. And I think they forget. Uh, I think they hyper-focus on these like very political biased stories, but these publications also do other kinds of stories and they're not all badly done stories. Um, there's other kinds of story content that they produce that's not um, all political, all ideologically driven and has value and they have big teams and they do have good writers. So I think it's more important for people to sort of figure out who those writers that they can trust are at these publications. Um, but I do hope that they do a little bit more self-reflection and, you know, why, why do people hate us? And it's not because, you know, Donald Trump said fake news, you know, and so all these Trump supporters now hate us because it's not just Trump supporters. It's, it's people on every side of the aisle um, that are feeling like they're not getting what they, that they, they should be. And the standards uh, of are different. And I think journalists are activists, right? And there is a difference between something like, you know, Tangle, where you're presenting kind of several points of views, and then you're um, very transparently then sharing your own viewpoint, which I think is perfectly acceptable. Or, you know, I when I wrote for these uh, big publications, I did write very objectively. Um, I did not present my own viewpoints. Now, when I'm writing on Substack, it's completely my point of view. It's all opinion, but I'm also transparent about that. And that's okay too. So I think there's room for that kind of um, uh, editorial content, right? But not when you're covering the news. And so um, I think I think the transparency is really important having these standards and also what you're choosing to cover and sort of the responsibility of what you're putting out in the world and the proportions, you know, whether how accurately are you representing what is going on in the world? You know, if you're constantly presenting as if there are, you know, a million shootings in the world, right? Like people are going to be scared to go out, but maybe there's only, you know, 10 shootings, <laughs> right? So yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a really tricky thing. And, you know, I, what I say often is I can pick any given event, you know, that happens, whether it's uh, like today, we, I'm sure you saw, there's like this breaking news that some missiles were shot out of the sky and landed in Poland, or, or maybe they weren't shot out of the sky, but two people died in Poland everybody's freaking out world war three is trending on Twitter. Not a good day. Uh, yeah. and, and you could go read the wall street journal and the New York times right now cover this exact same news event. And their articles will look really different. They'll use different leads. They'll have different sources. 
they'll frame the story around a different, you know, center focus. And that is an expression of bias. And those are, you know, the journalists there are the highest paid in the country with the biggest editors, the most resources. They should be the best journalists. I think they probably are the best journalists, but they come out with a totally different story. And that's just like proof of the fact that it is every, every news story is kind of an act of bias in its own way. You know, there are fair journalists and there are hacks and like delineating between the two can be hard. Some people are trying their best to do an even handed job, but you know, maybe their sources are a little biased that they've built over the years. And so my like premise of Tangle is you can't really do that. You can't really have a totally even look at all these things unless you're reading the same thing from multiple different sources. And we're trying to make that super easy for people and just sort of like put it all in one package where they can get everything in in a one-stop shop, I guess. It must be very difficult uh, on a daily basis when there's like so many things happening, deciding which one makes it into Tangle, which one doesn't. How do you decide that? Yeah, it's a, it's really tough. I mean, story selection, any journalist will tell you is an act of bias too. I mean, choosing yeah. what to cover and where to drive your attention, I think is um, is really, it's part of the issue. It's, you know, when conservatives complain about the New York times, it's not just that they wrote an article that had bias. It's that they're not covering an issue they think is really, they're not writing about the border enough, you know, right. um, or they're putting it on page 73 or yeah. yeah, exactly. And so I, I try, you know, first of all, I take cues from various home pages, you know, like again, just making sure I'm looking across the spectrum, like what is dominating, you know, oftentimes what is on the homepage of National Review and Fox News is not what's on the homepage of Huffington Post and the New York Times. And so if I were just looking at one side or the other to get those, um, I would I would always be making like an act of bias by choosing what to cover. If I was just like, okay, this is on the homepage of the New York times. We're going to do that today. Then we'd end up with this really kind of more left of center, left-leaning uh, story selection. So I do that. I just like, if it's getting dominant coverage in any kind of, you know, openly biased sort of news outlet, then I know one side definitely cares about it. I know we should definitely be covering it. Readers help a lot. I poll readers in the newsletter on Twitter. I get emails every day, people saying, hey, I really wish you would cover this. Um, there has to be enough conversation that there are like, for, for the Monday through Thursday editions, I need to bring together like these different various opinions. So there needs to be enough conversation around a topic that I can get opinions from both sides on it. Otherwise, it's more like Friday edition. If we want to cover something because nobody else is covering it, then we might do that. Um, and then, you know, I try and look for stuff. One of the tricky things is I try and look for stuff that I think there's really a divide on. I mean, the newsletter would be pretty uninteresting if they're, if everybody just thought the same thing. So that is a little bit of a trap that I worry about is I'm kind of reinforcing the political divides I'm trying to break down because it makes it seem like, oh my God, there's so many things we disagree on. And my resolution for that is oftentimes I can find people, one person or a few people from both sides who are sort of saying a similar thing and there's some common ground and agreement. But I do worry sometimes, like that's one of the things where I'm like, am I just kind of reinforcing this like whole tribalistic shtick that isn't, is just sort of like an illusion. Um, but, you know, it's, it's, I think ultimately it does more good to help people understand, you know, 
what each side is sort of championing or arguing than it does to pretend that like we totally agree on everything. So I just have to let go of that sometimes, but it's, it's hard. What has surprised you most about Tangle? Is, is there something that, you know, people agree on or embrace on both sides or is there any, or something else that maybe has surprised you? I mean, I, when I started, I was really unsure about whether it would work. I mean, if you, if you told me three years ago that, you know, we'd have 50,000 subscribers and this would be my full-time job, I would have been so pumped and shocked. And I am now that I'm here, but I think maybe the shock has worn off a little bit, but it, it's, it, I, I really didn't know that there would be like an organic interest because you're, we're all, we're just being told that like people don't want to change their minds. They're stuck in their biases, whatever. And now it's, you know, when I meet somebody and they ask me what, what I do and I tell them about the newsletter, I mean, eight times out of 10, they pull their phone out and sign up right there on the spot. I mean, it's like very compelling and interesting to people. And I've just realized that that pitch is so easy because so many people actually genuinely want it. And I think that was pretty surprising to me. I think I had a, I have a much more optimistic view of the country now than I did when I started, to be honest, which is not what I was expecting to happen. I don't think. I love that. I've actually, I'm I'm somebody who tells people about Tangle all the time as well, <laughs> and I've for forcefully signed some people up. Thank you, <laughs> including family members. So I appreciate it. Yeah. Well, no, I appreciate it existing. So uh, it, it's funny. I think I told you this before, but it was something I I was dreaming up something somewhat similar but I didn't make it happen. You did. So I'm glad <laughs> that it exists. And I think that's the important part. And, um, you know, I guess my final question to you is what is the, what do you see, you know, in the pie in the sky future of Tangle? What, what's your dream with it? Where do you see it going? You mentioned video. What else? Yeah, that's a great question. So, I mean, we have a few things sort of cooking up, I guess, in the short term. And definitely I have some dreams for the long term. I think in the short term, you know, I put a ton of research and work in every newsletter and I want to sort of squeeze the most out of that. So getting our content on different platforms to reach different people is is really important to me. I think email is definitely, you know, it's a lot easier to get people over the age of 30 to sign up for a newsletter um, the video space is one way we're going to get into, I think, tap into a little bit of a younger audience. I hear from a lot of teachers who want to use Tangle in their classroom, which I think is really cool. So we've been thinking about, um, you know, making a formatted newsletter where maybe my take is removed. And instead, there are like five discussion questions for every newsletter and, you know, signing up teachers for something like that. That's like a really exciting idea just Love to get that. high school kids, you know, in the mix thinking about it. Um, and then long-term, I mean, you know, I, I trust me, I have an entrepreneurial spirit. Like I want to make money and build a business and I'm, I'm not shy about that part either. Um, and I think it'd be really cool to have a small, well-paid team. I'm not trying to build the next CNN, you know, like I, I want a group of five or six people who are really mission oriented, care about what we're doing. Um, and we perfect these products that we're putting out, uh, and, and do that sort of at the U S politics level. I think there's a world where maybe we try to bring this to some other countries. Um, 
you know, Canada. that, yeah, Canada. Yeah. I, I mean, so obviously it, it probably is no surprise to you. Our second biggest readerships in Canada, we have a ton of readers from Australia and France and even Mexico as well. And I hear from people all the time in those countries, like, Hey, is there a tangle Canada, tangle France? And I say no. And then they're like, sweet. Can you like get on that? Cause I want to read this for, you know, and, and the model for that, I don't think would be super hard. I mean, I think it's, you know, Tangle Canada, you brand it, you have $100,000 of money in the bank and you sign somebody for like a year and a half contract and say, you know, show me what you can do. Can you build this list that will promote you? And eventually that newsletter should be paying for itself and the list the Tangle grows. franchise. Yeah, exactly. And, and like, I, I, that would be really cool. The the idea of sort of franchising it out is actually something that's really interesting to me. Um, and then I've also thought about like jumping verticals um, is another thing that's kind of fun. I, I, again, I think the model would be the same as like the franchise, but a tangle sports where we're doing like a sports debate every day, I think would totally work. I get, you know, a ton of people who are like, Hey, are you going to cover like Will Smith slapping Kanye West? And I'm like, no, that's not really in my wheelhouse, but it makes me think, damn, if I had a culture newsletter, we could do the debate. That would be really cool. Um, Cause people disagree in all sorts of different spaces. So yeah, I think there are some different ways to go with it, but uh, I got to make a lot more money and find some more hours in the day before I start doing any of that. That's fair, but by definitely a lot of options to grow, which is the the options are the important part. So you're kind of set up for that. Yeah, I hope so. I hope so. I mean, we gotta, we definitely gotta keep improving what we're doing now and um, get this to a really well oiled machine point. And I'm I'm currently trying to work a little bit less than I do. I'm the twelve to fourteen hour days, five or six days a week is not is not sustainable. Not sustainable. So. But I am excited to see how the Tangle Empire grows, and uh, you know, and then one day you'll just be like puppet. Yeah, I hope so. <laughs> and then people will be like, oh, he sold out. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. It never stays the same. It can't. You got to accept that. That's right. Well, thank you so much for bringing Tangle to my mailbox every day. And thank you so much for joining me for this chat. Really. Yeah, thanks. It was a blast. Yeah, I thank appreciate you. it. Likewise.